Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. I feel most alive and I feel happiest and I feel most in touch with myself when I'm aware of my death. If it happens for a day or two that it's not in the forefront for whatever reasons, I'm not as bright, as sharp, as alive. I just love bringing it back. It enlivens me. It supports me to live more fully and hopefully die with, with more delight and joy and curiosity. Hey, I'm Sigal Samuel, co-host of The Way Through. On this podcast, Sean Illing and I take turns talking to philosophers and spiritual leaders who can help us navigate the really difficult times that we're all living through right now, and maybe even find something meaningful along the way. My guest today is Nikki Mirgafori, who I find incredibly fascinating because of the combination of different perspectives that she brings. She spent three decades as an artificial intelligence researcher and a scientific advisor to tech startups in Silicon Valley. She's also spent a bunch of time in Myanmar, training with a Buddhist meditation master in the Theravada tradition. And nowadays she teaches Buddhist meditation internationally alongside her work as a scientist. One of Nikki's specialties is Maranasati, which means mindfulness of death. Now, I know you probably don't want to think about death today, and if I tell you that we're about to spend a whole podcast episode talking about it, you're maybe going to want to stop listening. But that's exactly why I'd say you should keep listening. Death is something that we really don't like to think or talk about, especially in the West. But our fear of mortality is what's driving so much of our anxiety, especially during this pandemic. So maybe it's the prospect of your own mortality that scares you. Or maybe you're like me, and thinking about the mortality of the people you love is really what's hard to wrestle with. Either way, I think that now is actually a great time to face that fear, to get on intimate terms with it so that we can learn how to reduce the suffering that it brings into our lives. In this conversation, Nikki outlines the benefits of contemplating our mortality. She then walks us through some concrete practices for developing mindfulness of death and working through the fear that can come up around that. Some of these practices are simple, like reciting a few key sentences every morning, and some of them are a bit more, shall we say, intense. But I think they're all super interesting ways that Buddhists have generated over the centuries to come to terms with the prospect of death rather than trying to escape it. So here's my conversation with Nikki Mirigafori. Nikki, hi. Welcome to the show. I am so happy to be talking to you. We have never met before, but I have to tell you, I feel like you're a bit of a kindred spirit. And that's partly because we both came to the practice of meditation by way of the same teacher. And I won't 
give away yet who that is. Maybe we'll give a bit of suspense and come back to that at the end. But for now, I'll just say it's the tiniest meditation teacher, the really tiniest guru you ever did meet. Mm. Um, because of this connection, which you know what I'm talking about, yes. um, I feel this a sort of kinship with you. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Sigal. It's lovely to meet you. Thank you. So I want to actually start by just talking about your fantastically unusual background. You have a PhD in computer science. You've been researching AI for some three decades. You've worked in Silicon Valley. You still live near there. Uh, so I'm sure that you've probably encountered this desire in tech circles to live forever, this quest for immortality, right? Uh, we have biohackers who are taking dozens and dozens of supplements every day, and some are having young blood transfusions, trying to put young people's blood in their veins to live longer, and people are having their bodies or brains preserved in liquid nitrogen, doing cryopreservation so they can be brought to life one day. What is your feeling about all of these efforts? It's the quest for immortality uh, mm -hmm. and, and the denial of death, that we are mortal. I mean, part of it is natural. It's, it's second nature to being human, and human beings have uh, done this, have, have um, had a quest for immortality and denying death to live forever, for as long as we've lived, for as long as we have been conscious of um, the fact that we are going to die, that we are mortal. Actually, um, a person who really put this well was Ernest Becker, the author of the seminal book, The Denial of Death, that was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for, non, for general nonfiction in 1974. And um, he put it really well. So I'd like to offer this quote from him. He said, this is the paradox. A human is out of nature and hopelessly in it. We are dual up in the stars, and yet housed in a heart-pumping, breath-gasping body that once belonged to a fish and still carries the gill marks to prove it. A human is literally split in two. We have an awareness of our own splendid uniqueness in that we stick out of nature with a towering majesty, and yet we go back into the ground a few feet in order to blindly and dumbly rot and disappear forever. It is a terrifying dilemma to be in and to have to live with. It's a beautiful quote. He nails it, Ernest Becker. It's really this paradox of us. This, this paradox really sets up what is called uh, terror management. And there's a whole field of research in psychology called terror management theory. It started from uh, the work of Ernest Becker. And basically this theory says that there is a psychological, there's a basic psychological conflict that arises. It produces terror. And how human beings manage this terror is either by embracing cultural beliefs or, or symbolic systems as, as ways to uh, counter this biological reality. Or as you pointed out, doing these various things, for example, 
uh, cryogenics and freezing your brain, freezing your whole body. It seems to me like in the West currently, we really have a bad case of that denial, of that fear. We seem to be wanting to always distract ourselves from it, avert our attention from it. You are a Buddhist practitioner and you have a practice that is very much, it seems to me, the opposite of that, which is mindfulness of death, maranasati. And I'd love to delve into this with you because I think it's something that can be really helpful to all of us during the pandemic. Fear of mortality, both our own and those we love, is the undercurrent driving so much of the anxiety that we're seeing these days and feeling these days. And you practice this a lot. You've done trainings and you've led retreats around this subject. But some people might say, Nikki, like, this is weird. This is morbid. This is depressing. I don't want to think about this. So before we actually delve into the mindfulness of death practices, could you maybe entice us, those of us who need a bit more enticement, by telling us a few of the benefits of doing mindfulness of death? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so. Uh, yes, you've done your homework, Seagal, and this is the topic. I mean, there are many topics that uh, I teach, but this one in particular is, is something that Buddhist teachers, uh, not too many of them teach mindfulness of, of death for a variety of reasons, but this is a, a topic that's really close to my heart and actually has been very meaningful for, for, for my own practice, for my own life. And it's something that I found to be very powerful uh, in, in sharing with other practitioners. The first and foremost, what I found for many people, myself included, is that facing the fact that I'm not going to live forever and my life is impermanent. I come and I go. This contemplation really aligns my life with my values. So number one is aligning our life with our values. So, so most people suffer what's called the misalignment problem, which is what your values are. We, we don't quite live uh, according to, to those values. And there was a study that actually really highlighted this. And the study was published in, in 2004 article uh, in the journal Science uh, by a team of scientists, including Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman. And they surveyed a group of women and compared how much satisfaction they derived from their daily activities. So among voluntary activities, you would probably expect that uh, people's choices would roughly correlate to their satisfaction, right? You know, if it's mm -hmm. a voluntary activity, right? You're just choosing to do it. You, you would think that, oh yeah, you actually enjoy it, right? Guess what? That was not the case. <laughs> so what actually they found was that the women reported deriving more satisfaction from prayer, worship, meditation than from watching television. But they actually, um, the average respondent spent more than five times as long watching television than engaging spiritual activities that they actually said they, they appreciated, enjoyed more. This is a misalignment problem. What we actually value, the way we want to spend our time, but we don't do that because we don't have the sense that time is short, time is precious. And the way systematically to actually 
raise the scarcity of time to our consciousness is wow i have little time i am going to die this is this show is not going to go on forever this is a party on death row so the approach here is to bring to the forefront of our consciousness how precious all yes. our time is yes. uh, so that we will align our life with our values and we do that by impressing upon our minds how scarce time actually is. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah, this, this time, this life is precious. The second benefit is to live without fear of death for our own sake, so that, as I mentioned, we don't engage in typical escape activities. And we have, and it frees up a lot of psychic energy. We have more peace, more ease in our lives. Like, yes, I am going to die. It is going to happen. Yeah. So number two was for our own sake. And the third one is for the sake of our loved ones, because we can support others in their dying process. Because usually the, the challenge of supporting a loved one is, you know, we, we have a sense of grief for losing them. But a lot of and a lot of times that sense of grief is actually is bringing up a sense of fear of our own mortality. So if we mm -hmm. have made peace with our own mortality, we can be fully present uh, fully spaciously present um, and support them in, in, in their process, which can be a huge gift. For example, uh, my mom passed away uh, two years ago. And for me, having done all these practices, I could be with her. I could be by her deathbed with peace and comfort, holding their hand, holding her hand while she held my hand. You know, we were holding each other's hand through the process. And for me, having made peace with my own death, supporting her so that she could have a peaceful transition. Uh, she didn't have to take care of me so much and console me, but she could, she could be at peace and, and relish, take delight in this mysterious process that we just don't know uh, what it's like. It might be beautiful, might be graceful, we don't know, having the don't know mind. Um, there might be nothing, there might be something, who knows, it doesn't matter without subscribing to any meaning making, but just having a lot of curiosity. Well, I feel sufficiently enticed to learn about the actual practices of mindfulness of death now. Let's start with one that seems a bit simpler or gentler, uh, which is the five daily reflections uh, sometimes called the five remembrances that are often recited in Buddhist circles. Would you mind reciting those for us? Happy to. So yeah, so these are called the five daily reflections. And Buddha suggested that, that people recite them every day. So I'm going to suggest that as I read these reflections, Sigal, for you to close your eyes, actually, and let these reflections be dropped in, not into your head, but into your body, as if you're breathing them, as if you're letting them resonate in you. And I'm inviting... Ooh, okay. Yeah. Okay, and, let's do this. Exactly. And they're gentle, don't worry. And I'm inviting both you and all the listeners to just try this. Here you have a chance. You have an opportunity to, to, to do a little bit of practice. So you're ready? All right. I'm closing my eyes now. I'm ready. Go for it. So the first... Contemplation. Just like everyone, I am of the nature to age 
I have not gone beyond aging. Just like everyone, I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. Ah, let it reverberate in your body for a breath or two. Not thinking about it, just dropping it in. See what comes up, whatever comes up. And you let it be okay, whatever it is. Whether it's recognition, sadness, terror, whatever it is, just be with it. Ah, now the second one, just like everyone. I am of the nature to sicken. I have not gone beyond sickness. I am of the nature to sicken. I have not gone beyond sickness. I am of the nature to sicken. And the third one, just like everyone, I am subjected to the results of my own actions. And I am not free from these karmic effects. Just like everyone, I am subjected to the results of my own actions in this life. And I'm not free from these karmic effects. And the fourth one, just like everyone, I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. And the fifth contemplation. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will change, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. Just like everyone, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will change, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. Allowing whatever arises to come up, it's okay. And these contemplations the first time around, or even the hundredth times around, may bring a lot up just to be with them, just to be with them as much as possible, titrating. 
ourselves. How are you, Sigal? What happened? Are you okay? Okay, well, you are okay. I'm okay. I So I've done these reflections before, but every time I do them, I notice some things. First of all, it's very, very clear to me some of these are much harder for me to absorb than others. The one that said, the fourth one, I think, that says, you know, I'm of the nature to die. I'm kind of like, okay, like that, my own death does not terrify me. I don't know. Maybe that's weird, but that's not the one that really scares me. The one that really I find impossibly hard is the fifth one. Everyone that I love, everything that I love is of the nature to change and be separated from me. It's really the death or the separation from the people I love that I find much harder to face than the death of myself. If I'm going to die, sure, okay, you know, then I'll be gone. There won't be any me uh, in my particular Sigalness to miss that. Yeah. So to appreciate and really um, make space for for the one that really touches you and and um and also i would say that um with the fourth one also which we'll get more into um in a moment with the this could be my last breath practice um number four sometimes also that oh making peace with our own death sometimes it can see and i've gone through it so i'll speak from personal experience like on the practice and sometimes like yeah sure okay whatever you know yeah 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 and then we and then then I've practiced I've practiced we really intensely stayed with it stayed with it and really yeah this is a good segue for the fourth one staying with that specific practice uh this could be my last breath this right here could be my last breath and then at times when the practice really takes hold and becomes a light with, with fire of aliveness like oh my god i'm gonna die <gasps> it really hits home so so one can go into deeper states okay so just to clarify so this is a yeah. separate practice yeah a separate mindfulness of death practice yeah. that is this could be my last breath where you contemplate with every inhalation this could be my last inhale this could be my last exhale could you also do it with other things? Like this could be my last bite of food. This could be my last step I take. Yeah, yeah. Just to also bring the historical context in it, actually, this particular teaching is in what's called Maranasati Sutta. Maranasati, Marana is death in Pali, the language of the Buddha. Sati is mindfulness. Mindfulness of the death sutra or sutta. So it's in that that's where the Buddha taught it for people who may want to, to look it up and are curious in the historical context. And it's actually quite a lovely teaching because the, the, the Buddha comes and asks the monks, so monks, how are you practicing mindfulness of death? And one of them says, well, I think, oh, I can die in, in a fortnight in a couple of weeks. Another one of them says, well, I think that I could die in, you know, 24 hours. The other one says, oh, I could die at the end of this meal. And then one of them says, well, I could die at the end of this bite of food I'm eating. And the other one says, well, mm-hmm. I could die at the end of this very breath. So, and the Buddha says, he had a great sense of humor, by the way, if you read this, it's, 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 it's awesome. He says, well, 
those of you who said, you know, 24 hours or two weeks, whatever, an hour, you are practicing heedlessly. Those who said right at this breath or right this morsel of food as, as I eat it, you are practicing heedfully correctly. That is the practice. So, so the practice, so the practice could be this could be my last breath and contemplating. And there are ways to, to really bring the sense of immediacy and urgency of, oh, this could be my last breath. And if this is not my last breath, my last breath could be very similar to this. And again, the part of guided meditation, like really giving instructions or or imagining like you, I could die. There could, you know, it's not out of fully out of the question that there could be an aneurysm or that it could be, you know, a um, uh, a meteor just hitting the earth in this moment. It is possible that this really could be my last breath. So there's a sense of really getting the, the, the mind to believe that this could be my last breath uh, because otherwise the mind will go ah this isn't my last breath really come on this is just a practice you're joking with me but when it really catches on then at times the ego can go ah I'm gonna die and then the sense of uh, working with the terror little by little titrating so a little bit of terror comes up one works with it there's a sense of peace then you think like oh I got this I'm okay with my death. And then you do this practice again. And then maybe in a few hours or in a few days, again, it really lights up. It's like, wow, okay, I guess I wasn't quite okay with my death. You realize there's so many layers to work through. I kind of just try to do this while you were just speaking now and try to tell myself that this, this in-breath may be my last in-breath. Mm-hmm. And uh, it my mind revolted and was like, no, yeah. this is silly. Of course, it's not going to be my last in-breath. Yeah, of course, this exactly. is, I'm not going to die in one second. See, there and you go. So maybe that's the terror management theory, my ego just revolting against this possibility of my own demise. But how yeah. can I push past that? How can I sort of convince my brain, no, no, this really could be your last breath? Yeah, 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 yeah. Great question. So so the way to practice, so this one is a practice. I mean, the same way that, say, there is mindfulness of the breath and people sit and, you know, mindfulness of the body, you sit for 30 minutes, you sit, you go on a retreat the whole day, you do it. You, you do this as a practice, not just for 30 seconds or five seconds. You do this for an extended period of time. You sit and this becomes your practice. This becomes what your mind is resting on over and over and over and over again as a formal sitting meditation practice. That's what I mean. This is a formal practice. It's the, the other ones were contemplations, right? These are called, mm-hmm. those were contemplations. So there's a difference between these two practices. The other ones were contemplations, the five that we went over. This is a meditation practice called the Marnasati practice. You just do this with, for you, you know, on the retreats that we teach, people do this Every hour of the day, when they're sitting, when they're walk, when they're sitting silently in the meditation hall, when they're walking down, this could be my last step. When they're going to the, the hall to to eat their food, this could be my last morsel. They're doing it nonstop every day, and then it can really drop down in in below the the um, psychological uh, defenses. It really belows drops under that but for five you know five seconds ten seconds nah it's not gonna work here it's like hey my defenses are up you know it's not gonna happen 
Do you recommend actually visualizing some of the scenarios you just said could happen, like an asteroid coming to Earth and yeah. suddenly yeah. Yeah. wiping yeah. us all out? Yeah. Is, is yeah. visualizing that maybe yeah. helpful? You, you want to get your mind to believe, to actually kind of give up its defenses. So yes, use visualizations, be creative, and even something that could be used sparingly, very sparingly, is to hold your breath at the out-breath. You hold your breath at the out-breath and kind of feel the sense of gasping for air, like, whoa, yeah, this, if, if it feels a little more physical, more real, like, wow, yeah, this, this is, I'm not that far from death. Like, it's, the death is so close. Actually, there's a Persian saying that death is closer to you than your eyelashes. Mm. We think it's far away, but it's so close to you. Our lives are so fragile. So by holding your breath, uh, again, do this sparingly if you choose to, because you don't want to get asphyxiated. And but but really brings up this physical sense of how fragile this this life actually is. That this could be my last breath. And then when that fear, like if that succeeds in breaking down some of your psychological defense mechanisms and your fear actually does arise, the terror arises, what do you do with that? How do you hold that? Yeah, yeah. So so it is helpful to have some skill and some, um, some practice, some basically meditation practice so that you can sit with the emotions that are coming up basically with mindfulness of body, mindfulness of emotions, when emotions arise, you sit with them, you breathe with them, like, oh, yeah, here's the fear. Uh, you, you befriend it, you make space for it, you get to know it with curiosity, without judgment. It's, it's making space because these fears are so pushed into the dark, and when they come, you're befriending, okay, let me see you, let me understand you, let me be with you, you sit with it, you sit with it, with patience, with care, with kindness, until it doesn't scare you anymore. That makes sense. I think it's, you know, the idea of fear comes up or anxiety comes up and normally our impulse is to sort of run away from that, avert from that, instead to just say, oh, okay, yeah, I'm observing that intense fear is coming up. Interesting, you know, and kind of watching it. The other thing I find really helpful is remembering, keeping top of mind the idea of impermanence, which of course applies to, that's sort of the theme of our whole conversation, that our whole life is impermanent. That's a very central Buddhist teaching, but also any emotion that I'm feeling is impermanent. So if I'm feeling like an intense surge of fear right now, that's impermanent too. So when I'm feeling some intense spike of emotion, it helps me to remember this spike of emotion is also impermanent. Don't worry, Sigal, you won't feel like this forever. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Yeah, I love that. It's, it's yeah, as you're pointing out, this this whole conversation is really in the context of, this is the big impermanence. And and, and, and when I teach impermanence, yeah, there are little impermanences that come and go, and there are these big impermanences, which is your life. And, um, and yeah, and when, when you're saying, uh, um, I'm chuckling because this is the case where, uh, impermanence is on your side, right? Impermanence is a rule, yes. is, is the way things are. In this case, it's on your side because this thing that's unpleasant, you're right? Oh, yeah, it's going to go. And then there are times <laughs> that you contemplate when impermanence is not on your side with, with the fifth contemplation that you were sharing, how how the, the realization that 
uh, everyone and everything who's dear to you will change and you'll become separated of, of, with. And that's when impermanence is not on your side and, and making peace with that. So impermanence is just the rule of how things run in this world, right? And it, But it's our perspective how we think we're on. It, it's either working for us or against us, but it's it's impersonal. It's just the way things are. Can you walk me through another kind of contemplation? We won't actually do this one. We won't actually do this practice. I think it's a bit intense, but can you describe what is sometimes called a corpse contemplation or charnel ground contemplation? Yeah, I can tell you about it. Um, I'll tell you about it in abstract. I'll just describe it to you. And it's the contemplation that's actually um, many monks, especially in Asia, do that. And it's the um, contemplation of actually, in order to become more intimate with the sense of mortality, is to uh, go to the charnel ground where uh, corpses are there and to actually see a corpse. And, and the contemplation is that this body is not my body, this alive body, is just like this body that is decaying. And it's in different uh, stages of decomposing. So just to clarify, so charnel grounds are these places where above ground human bodies that, you know, people that have died, their bodies are just left to decay, to rot uh, in the open air, right? And, and Buddhist monks would go and observe them up close. The, the specific... Uh, practice in the Buddhist canon is to contemplate a corpse in different stages of decay uh, in order to really, and, and, and this particular practice, it um, requires a sense of stability, I would say, a sense of stability of mind and do the other ones first. Um, and this one really requires a particular stability of mind. And also I only teach it on retreat when there's a really container of safety and holding people and supporting them through it. You actually on retreats show a PowerPoint presentation of images of corpses at different stages yeah. of disintegration, yeah. right? Yes. Yes. It, it can be very intense when we time that very carefully at the right time of the retreat, not at the beginning, not at the end, kind of in the middle where just a lot of holding of people and supporting them. Yeah. I definitely have not worked myself up yet to doing corpse contemplation by looking at images of actual human corpses. But when I uh, go for a walk, I, I go for a, a lot of walks these days during the pandemic, uh, whenever I see a bird dead in the road or, or you know, a squirrel or a mouse or something that's been run over in the, in the road, I actually pause and just like take a minute or two to look at it. Um, yeah. it's, uh, that's the closest I've gotten. That's I'm trying to titrate, as you said, ease my way into this practice. Yeah, exactly. Brilliant. And, and I'm uh, really glad you brought that up, Seagal. So the idea is not to turn away. When you see death, not turn away. Um, when you see death, turn your mind towards it and be with it. This body is just like that body. It's a bird. It's, it's a four-legged animal. It's, it's not. It, we're, we're both nature. We have both been born and will pass. So I appreciate, you know, how you're building up to, to the human Corpses. And yes, similarly, another, another informal practice, a couple of other informal practices I wanted to share. Uh, having memento moris, having memento moris is very important. Yes. Having, 
having skull, you know, like a little skull and bone or just various memento moris, uh, maybe wearing. I've, I've seen people wear these bracelets that are all skulls for a long time. I had just drawn on a little post-it a skull skull bones and of course it's, it's important to, to to change it every every now and then so I just had the post-it on my monitor so I would remember hey life is short I'm gonna die um I've had various memento moris on my desk on my monitor throughout the years to just keep death right on my shoulder um as Carlos Castaneda says just keeping death on my shoulder as a wise advisor so I I invite people to have momentum, and they again, they don't have to be sophisticated. A piece of paper, just or even write, you know, life is short, or you're going to die, or life is impermanent. Or um, another sentence that I like to use is, "Traveler, tread lightly," because I, you're a traveler. I'm a traveler in this life. Not nothing I own is truly myself. So having momentum is whatever works for you to keep death in your perspective. And I think it's good to switch memento mores around so that your mind doesn't get used to seeing the same thing all the time. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up memento mori because I was going to say the the corpse contemplation reminds me a lot of that memento mori tradition, which is a centuries-long tradition in Christianity, right? So we have many different religious traditions actually emphasize the importance of meditating on our death and keeping at the forefront of our minds, hey, you know, time is short, you're going to die. Uh, so it's it's not only Buddhism, but a lot of traditions have recognized the utility of this and have devised ways like the memento mori to try to keep pushing our minds beyond where they want to go, try to keep forcing the ego to recognize its looming demise. Yeah, yeah. And, and I know that for me, I feel most alive and I feel happiest and I feel most in touch with myself when I'm aware of my death. If it happens for a day or two that it's not in the forefront for whatever reasons, I'm not as bright, as sharp, as alive. I just love bringing it back. It enlivens me. It supports me to live more fully and hopefully die with with more delight and joy and curiosity. I I want to offer two quick practices also. Um, And another one is, and this could be a challenging one. One is when you lie in bed at night, and I do this, I like doing this, you think, I may not wake up tomorrow morning. It is possible that I may not wake up tomorrow morning for a variety of reasons, right? So That would make it very hard for me to fall asleep at night. uh, Okay, well then don't do it. But for me, it's actually a (laughs) sense of, uh, so maybe, okay, well, don't do it now. Maybe someday you'll, you'll, you'll uh, uh, build up to it as you're doing. There's another one, actually, I think it's simpler. And that is when you wake up in the morning to say, this could be the day that I die. What if I died today? What if I died today? How does that sound, Sigal? Is that a little lighter or no still? I think that's better <laughs> because... <laughs> uh, because you know, at least then you're starting your day. <laughs> but whereas if you're trying to fall asleep, for me, if I'm trying to fall asleep, it's not the time that I want to bring up yeah, a lot of terror. Yeah, yeah. It'll it'll prevent right. me from sleeping. Maybe but, someday. But I like maybe the someday. idea of, yeah, maybe I'll build up to it. I like the idea of, you know, okay, first thing in the morning I wake up and I say, this could be my last morning. 
okay, then it gives me a sense of, well, then I better make this day count, right? It's that sense of aligning my life with my values. Yeah, um, exactly. I could, I could see that being useful. Um, I was raised in the Jewish tradition where there's a one saying or recommendation is that you should wake up every morning roaring like a lion, ready to greet your creator. So (laughs) I definitely don't do this every morning, but once in a while, first thing when I wake up in the morning, I roar. um, And that's a sense of like, okay, let's align with values. Let's actually make this day be of use. Um, So maybe that practice that you just mentioned of this could be my last morning could also help. Yeah, exactly. Well, maybe you could help me with this. So, you know, I mentioned earlier, I'm not really scared of my own death so much, but I am much more scared of the death of the people I love. And especially during the pandemic, I think that's causing a lot of anxiety for me and probably a lot of others. You know, we're scared about the potential death of our grandparents, our parents, our friends who might be immunocompromised, all of that. How, is there a way to free ourselves of the overwhelming fear of their death? Is there a way to practice with that in particular? Oh, that's a great question. So what I would suggest is two things. One is realizing that process of grief either expected grief or grief after a loved one passes is a natural part of the process. However, it is complicated by our own seen and unseen fear of death. I invite you to actually work with the practice of making peace with your own death. That's what's underlying it. Does that make sense? So two different things. One is if you want to have a sense of freedom from fear of losing others, work with, even if you think you're not afraid of your own death, you probably are. There are many levels that are not seen in that. So that is what my practice and intuition and supporting others have shown me, that when people are really in peace, with peace, with their own passing, there is a different perspective. There's a different way of being with the fear or sadness of losing others. It shifts. There is still a pain of loss, but it shifts it in ways that I cannot put into words. You have to experience it. It does. I think probably if If I were to work through fear of my own death on deeper levels, I would probably, it would probably shake up my very notion of what it means to die. And then that insight would reverberate out to apply to death of loved ones, I imagine. Exactly. I also think that a big part of what adds to the fear is the stories that we tell ourselves about the death of loved ones and maybe how we didn't do enough to protect them or whatever it is. I find very useful in Buddhism, the teaching of the first arrow, the second arrow. The Buddha talked about how we're, you know, shot with these arrows. The first arrow is when we have a direct experience of pain. And then the second arrow is how we relate to that pain by resisting it, whether through getting angry or blaming someone or blaming ourselves. A lot of extra suffering that we cause to ourselves by believing this shouldn't be this way, you know. Do you think doing this reflection on your own 
mortality helps you to avoid later second arrowing yourself when someone you love passes away? Yes and no. So there is the extra second arrows. And I liked how you brought the teaching of the second arrow in here because yes, the first arrow is what life gives you and the second arrow is second, third, fourth, fifth, you know, plenty of errors that our minds come up in the way that we think about something. Specifically with the, in the case of grief, it's practicing with the wisdom of the second era can support to some extent, yes, absolutely. And yet, I think some of it is part of the five stages of grief. And as Elizabeth Kubler-Ross beautifully developed and pointed out through her decades of work with death and dying. And one of the stages is called bargaining. And bargaining is, oh, I should have done this. Oh, I, it's, it's part of it. It's part of the process of grief. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's natural to go through that. But, and, and I think it may not be as uh, piercing or as, as painful or as intense or as long or as or as awful as it tends to be if one doesn't have practice with the second arrows. So what I'm trying to say is that naturally the bargaining stage might still come up. It's not like you'll avoid it altogether because you have the second arrow practice under your belt, but you'll be dealt with with a lot more wisdom and a lot more ease. That makes sense. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So last question for you. You know, we've We've been talking a lot about death and dying. I think a lot of fear also exists right now around experiences of drawn out suffering, right? So not actually dying, but just the fear that one will get sick and suffer a lot. And I think that fear is amplified the more we learn that some people who get COVID-19 have symptoms that last months, right? They can have chronic pain, chronic complications of the coronavirus. And I have experience with chronic pain. Uh, I think you do too. And this goes back to what I was alluding to at the beginning of the conversation, how we both kind of got into meditation in the same way. And that is, do you want to say? A tick bite, Lyme disease. Yay. (laughs) Yes. So a little tick bit each of us years ago, Yeah. a little tick, uh, and what I, one thing I love about your teaching or your story is that you actually have said that this tick that bit you many years ago, that gave you Lyme, that gave you chronic pain, has been the biggest spiritual teacher on your path. Like it's been your greatest guru or your greatest teacher. And you actually wrote a thank you letter to this tick that bit you, right? What, what was that letter about? Yeah. Um, yeah, actually I wrote the letter, gosh, how many years ago now? At that time, I was actually, uh, at my sickest I've ever been. I was homebound and bedbound at the time. I was really sick and, um, and it had been a period of, of being so sick, having to, to, um, let go more and more and more of socializing with friends, doing what I love to do, so many things. And my life had become really pared down 
to just perhaps a few hours of work, if at all, and just sleeping, resting, being in pain, being in bed, meditating, really just observing, being with the pain, being with the pain. I've been practicing for, for, uh, for years by then. And the letter came from the inspiration that I realized how much in that period of time I had changed from the beginning when there were many more second and third and fourth arrows. When is this ending? It might never. I may never get better. And why me? And so many stories with pain and difficulty and, and challenges and, and physical, uh, both physical and emotional suffering. And then after a few months of this, things hadn't quite changed physically, but the way that I was working with all of that, there was so much more compassion both for myself and for everyone in the world who was sick in any way. It was, it was part of my practice. I would be lying in bed and just doing compassion practice for myself and everyone who's really hurting right now, uh, anywhere in the world in this moment, is bed-bound or sick. Uh, and this sense of this feeling of this community of all of us, all the people, and my mind just opened up to all the beings who suffer around the world, and I did this every day, every hour, it felt like a transformation in my heart in compassion both for me and for others in just a way, in so many ways, not just in compassion, but with patience, with the shift in perspective, with it. there's so many gifts that came from that period of intense difficulty, really changed and shifted me it changed me and and it's still continuing to shift me and change me and had I not been pushed to my edge really I would have just gone along and been the whatever happy-go-lucky computer scientist I had been and you know contributing to the world in other ways but so much beauty and grace and depth that came out of this from being in this fire, from burning in this fire, it seemed like my pain and sorrow was alchemically transformed to something more beautiful and something more gracious and divine that I could not have ever imagined. So hence the thank you letter to the tick. So it's not to say, you know, hey, everyone, go in search of chronic pain. But if this tick hadn't bitten you and a friend hadn't said, hey, you're in a lot of pain, you know, what could help with this? Maybe try going to this meditation retreat. You might never have discovered this whole path of meditation and, and gone on to do retreats and all the trainings you've done. My question for you now is, do you feel like your experience with chronic illness has made you more scared of experiencing chronic complications if you were to contract COVID-19? Or has it made you less scared or feel more equipped to handle it? And if the latter, please tell me how, because I am in the more scared category and I would like to be in the less scared category. Oh, yeah, I appreciate the question. Oh, I'm definitely in the less scared category. I'm not, I'm not afraid of anything. I mean, I'm not afraid. There's a deep sense of safety that I have in the universe that nothing can deeply happen to me. 
And yes, I can become, I can die and I can become whatever, get COVID-19 and have and suffer for the rest of my life. But it's, it's, there's, there's something, something that has transformed. There's another perspective, another way of being. Uh, I mean, I, I don't want to suffer. I don't really appreciate, I don't enjoy suffering, but if it were to happen, it's, I don't know what else would open up. I have to ask on behalf of myself and also any listeners who might have chronic illness, who might be immunocompromised or be dealing with this kind of painful experience in the past and are, as a result, they feel more high risk or they're more scared of developing COVID-19. How do you recommend dealing with that fear that I think for some of us is amplified by past experiences or current conditions in the case of people who have underlying conditions or are immunocompromised. Is there a piece of advice you could give to that? Here's the advice I would give. Fear is forward-looking, is future-oriented, and is a sense of what might happen and how ill-equipped you might be to handle it and how awful it might be and how terrible if you stay in the moment just in right here in this moment and re- and asking how are things right now okay you're at home uh, you can't go out um, you can't go see your friends can in this moment if you really really sit with that breathe with that Am I okay in this moment? Well, actually, you know what? It's okay. I can handle this. I can handle this. And building the trust in that way can really build little by little. When the future moment becomes the present moment, no matter what it is, you'll be working with it. So staying in the present and building the strength to work with it now. So is it a sense of trust in yourself your own resilience and your capacity to use these these tools that you've learned, these practices and, and trust in those practices? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, and, and trust gets built little by little. It's not overnight. So I would advise everyone who's sitting with this question that you asked is to start practicing now. Start getting the tools right now in order to build this trust in your capacity to be calm, to be resilient, to be to be with. And at first, the trust might be borrowed trust or borrowed faith, we call it borrowed, because, oh yeah, some spiritual teacher said this, this tool, this thing worked for them. Well, hmm, they, they seem kind of reasonable and 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 maybe I could help relieve them. So it's borrow trust first, borrowing it from others. And then when you start to actually practice it for yourself, then it becomes verified trust. It's like, wait a minute. Oh, a month ago when I got this kind of an email, I was I was a mess. But right now I got it. I sat with it. I breathed with it. I'm like, oh, and then I wrote back a very diplomatic, nice, kind response. I wasn't a mess. Right? So you kind of build up a trust little by little by little by how you can yourself maneuver, how you can ride the waves of life. Waves will always be there, but then you're not scared of them. You're not scared of being knocked over. In fact, you start building yourself a little surfboard, like, hey, I'm going to surf these waves, right? It'll be interesting. 
Well, I aspire to that sense of safety and sense of calm that you project throughout this whole conversation. It's calming just to talk to you. So I really appreciate you and I appreciate your being on the show with us. Thank you, Seagal. Thank you for the invitation and and all the questions and also offering uh, what you're offering to many people in the world to support them uh, in this time. Take good care. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us. If you liked today's episode, make sure to catch the next one by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please share this with your family and friends. If you have feedback about this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can send me a message on Twitter at Sigal Samuel, or you can email me at sigal.samuel at vox.com. Our editor and producer is Jackson Bierfeld. The show is edited by Albert Ventura. Our executive producer is Liz Nelson. And this show is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Visit vox.com slash podcasts to find more of our shows.